Welcome to Entertainment Business Wisdom with Kaya Alexander and Sylvia Franklin, where the business of entertainment is up for discussion. Our special guests will help us navigate the ever-changing landscape of the industry. So I am Kaya Alexander. So excited to be here today with my special guest, Will Nix. Will, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Where have you joined us from today? Um, I'm in uh, Los Angeles. And um, how, how are you doing right now? Because we're here in the pandemic. We're at the tail end of the pandemic, coming in through spring. How are you doing? Uh, well, it's been uh, you know for a very strange year, I think, for everybody. And you know, part of the, what's strange now is having gotten used to being in a very limited sort of uh, uh, geographic range of uh, circulation or whatever, you know, to the store and whatever, and and living uh, in a very contained way. Now, sort of unwinding that is is kind of you know, what do you do? You know, you know, you went out to a restaurant for the uh, you know the first time about a week ago and it was you know everybody still pretty masked up and face shields and all of that it was just a strange experience and sort of uh, I, saying okay well how do you re-engage with life and what does that look like I mean, uh, that's kind of the uh, the odd thing for now but uh, you know in baby steps we're getting there Yes, we are. And, you know, it's such an interesting time, too, for the industry in which you wear many hats. I'm speaking to you today, you know, talking to you with your attorney expertise, but also you're a producer. Your film um, was nominated for an Academy Award. Congratulations. And um, it's really interesting to talk to you with your perspective because you're also a teacher. You teach for Pepperdine, you're a professor in this industry. So you have such a fascinating corner of the map illuminated for us of what you have seen, what you understand, and also a little bit of the, um, you know, the orientation of like, where are we now? Because there's the pandemic, which has changed the industry with Zoom and, you know, pitch meetings going online and, and everything happening in that capacity from the industry being like shut down to it reopening and then shutting down again. <laughs> and now it's changed business. Um, and I'm just so interested to talk to you with your perspective of what you've seen that is good that's coming out of it and what may be the challenging elements that we're recovering from in the industry right now? Well, you know, the good thing is that the industry has uh, adapted as best it could to keep, uh, you know, uh, new productions going and you know, I think the television and sort of short form content like uh, advertising commercials things like that have managed to pivot uh, more quickly than the more long form feature and and whatever and then uh, you know certain kind of content like animations for instance which are done in a very controlled uh, contained environment uh, you know those have uh, managed to adapt in the times as well but you know the feature films and and you know whatever have uh, had a, more of a struggle but you know it, it spawned a whole new industry I mean I have friends who were you know active line producers who uh, got certified in uh, how to run uh, COVID testing and run sets 
that were safe and would uh, satisfy the uh, you know SAG after and other guild requirements, IATSE, you know, to keep the you know people uh, you know, able to operate in a safe uh, kind of way. So that there were new new disciplines, if you will, that came, you know developed from it uh, in order to keep the uh, things going. Uh, the other thing I think you know the big point of it is that certain things that were already uh, being technologically driven, like you know the uh, gravitation of a lot of content uh, into the streaming world, uh, you know from the traditional television, cable, uh, and uh, feature film uh, worlds. Uh, the pandemic simply, you know, of necessity, kind of ex uh, accelerated that, uh, and you know that's um, you know been good for people trapped at home because there's at least something to you know keep you from climbing the walls uh, you know in, in desperation in the isolation of it all but it's also uh, you know had a severe impact on the theatrical world and the cinema specifically I mean you know, arc light cinema mm -hmm. in, in, in this this area but not the usual big box theaters like uh, uh, Alamo theaters for instance that started down in Texas um, the, the Alamo Draft House theaters, they, you know, they've been filing for bankruptcy and a lot of the big ones, you know, even with pandemic relief funds or whatever, are still struggling and, uh, you know, filing you know, for bankruptcy, Chapter 11, reorganization, whatever. So it's it's a difficult time. And it's also impacted, I think, on, on distribution patterns. I mean, it, the, um, uh, the head of CAA was, you know, just talking about the uh, HBO Max decision to uh, put all of what normally would have been Warner Brothers theatrical feature content uh, that would run, you know, on a normal kind of schedule through uh, theaters and then the various windows of distribution, uh, it, it basically saying everything was going to go um, through the HBO Max and they'd see how that would look. Uh, and you know, that is going to have an impact on, you know, it, as the head of CAA said, with on back end participations. You know, that was that was another thing that was uh, happening also with, uh, you know, from a talent perspective, uh, you know, mainly above the line, you know, sort of uh, people. But, uh, you know, the ability to participate in a back end of the upside of that uh, that was already a challenge in, in the streaming world. And it's going to be even more so, you know, if there isn't a feature film world as we know it. Right, like what happens when there, there's those royalties aren't getting paid? I mean, there's always been in our industry the guns for hire uh, mm -hmm. at every level, but then there are those for whom they have ownership over yep. um, their shows or their films, and that's going to change, you know, our, our longevity. It, it is an interesting time. It, the case study of HBO Max is a really cool one too, because here we have, you know, the original home box office, right, and. They're known for their high, high quality of content and creation and curation because it's limited. And in order to play against the big streamers, Netflix and Amazon and Disney, how are they going to pivot? And I think they did, an, and they made an interesting choice, which was the acquisition of content, right? Because how what, could they possibly do that many originals? And I guess somebody over there decided better to do the curated acquisition that is true to their brand and I'm so far I think they're doing a great job but I don't know how they're going to hold up against all the um the incredibly populated what's now the red ocean of the streaming platforms right yeah well yeah and, and you know it's interesting how different studios and networks have approached this I mean Universal for example 
uh, worked out um, a deal with uh, the AMC theater chain, one of the biggest, uh, and uh, to uh, work out, uh, you know, to narrow the, the window of uh, release time between uh, theatrical uh, and going into streaming or other, uh, you know, t televised platforms. Uh, and, uh, but they uh, were able to work out some sort of deal. We don't know exactly what the terms were because it was confidential, but presumably, uh, you know, the uh, AMC gets some sort of share to the extent that they're going day and date or in a, a collapsed window of some sort, uh, you know, between the uh, theatrical opening and, uh, and what it's available in those other platforms. So people are approaching it in different ways. And, you know, it's a question of how competitive the marketplace will be and in terms of different services, uh, you know, I think one of the big uh, things that probably all the, the uh, you know, major studios that are, you know, jumping in with both feet on the uh, streaming uh, end is uh, to what extent they're going to be com uh, competitive in terms uh, with the, the creative community. Uh, Netflix has certainly been, you know, they, you know, they've created this market essentially and they've been the leader in it. Uh, and But there's very much of a sort of a, uh, uh, a rich man, poor man sort of stratification in terms of the deals that get done. If you're Shonda Rhimes or if you're, you know, somebody who's been an A-list uh, producer, for example, in, uh, you know, traditional television uh, 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 platforms, then uh, you are getting certain kinds of terms that are the equivalent of a back end or a pre buyout, essentially. Uh, and uh, it, that's where your profit margin is for, Interesting. You know, independence and smaller, you know, still, you know, people who are producing quality content, but just don't have that sort of a, a level uh, gravitas in the market. Uh, they aren't, uh, you know, they're essentially being told, uh, you know, you know, we're going to own the copyright, we're going to own, you know, 360 rights and everything, and and basically what you thought you owned, you don't really own if you want to do a deal with them, uh, uh, you know, unless it's just a pure distribution deal or something. But but kind of like a buyout. Yeah, pretty yeah. much, and and the buyouts, you know, there was, uh, you know, a couple of years ago there was a larger mar margin. Uh, in those buyouts, so that there you know, was this, in effect, something equivalent to a back end, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, or a profit margin, uh, you know, above and beyond what your, you know, your rate might be, you know, for right. providing a certain service. level of profitability, and you get a, another royalty. And, piece and, like it, and the, you know, that percentage has shrunk. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, at the same time that you know the CEOs are making, you know. $40 million a year salaries in between the, you know, or compensation packages uh, to be more precise. So, uh, you know, but whether competition will be more favorable and allow, you know, you know content creators uh, to, you know, participate financially in, in a more significant way. I mean, I think that's all playing out right now. And it's really interesting. One of the things that I, I mean, I've been seeing, I'm sure you've been seeing it too, is that the risk is being passed back to the creators and the creatives. So it, they have to take on like making a whole show and figuring out if they can sell it or when or, or how. Um, and one of the things that I'd like to talk to you about are these if come deals, especially for the showrunners. Like previously in my mind, you know, the studio is the bank, but it now sounds like they're functioning also as like a pass through if there's, you know, if it gets picked up somewhere else. Can you speak to me about that a little bit more? I'd like to understand it better. 
Yeah, and in fact, um, just I want to take a step back from that just for a historical benchmark. Uh, one of the things that happened as a result of the Writers Guild strike back in 2008, it was one of kind of those law of unintended consequences things. Basically, the ballooning of uh, non-scripted television, uh, all the reality, the so-called reality shows that are on the air and whatever that they weren't there in anything like you know to, to the degree they are in terms of you know taking up schedules or whatever. And the other thing it is that a lot of the the on the lot type uh, you know first look or output deals the producers had uh, with studios and networks just went away mm-hmm. uh, and you know again there were certain people you know the Adam Sandlers of the world you know who's you know still on the Sony lot and has you know that kind of setup but you know or the Clint Eastwoods of the world or whatever the, you know but most of those deals just uh, disappeared and and to your point uh, a lot of the risk. Uh, and the burden of developing uh, went onto the producers' backs. Uh, you know, not only to go out and uh, either option content, hiring writers, you know, do, doing all of the things that you have to do in development, and which is, I'm sure you know, can take years and, and involve substantial investment. And then, it, without an assurance uh, that you're going to get picked up for theatrical release or, or some sort of television release as well. So, it, it being uh, in the independent film world uh, or, or any, uh, you know, the television world as well, it's be- became much, much more risky. Uh, and indeed, uh, you know, one of the challenges going on in the industry is, you know, that there is a movement to figure out some way for, you know, this sort of the independent community to, to uh, unionize. Uh, there were some court decisions and administrative law decisions, uh, you know, about a decade or more ago uh, that sort of uh, made it difficult because it, all producers were classified as management uh, and therefore not able to organize and collectively bargain. Uh, so, well, <clears throat> you have groups like the AMPTP, for example, that uh, bargains on behalf of all the large studios and, and networks and whatever, uh, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, for instance, the Producers Guild isn't at that table. The members of the Producers Guild, there are like 10,000 members of the, or so in, you know, uh, in, in, in rounded numbers who just aren't there. So there is an effort uh, being undertaken to figure out how to have some representation and that would uh, give the, the kind of collective bargaining you know, rights and, and uh, leverage uh, in the marketplace that was lost back in that 2008 thing. So I've wandered off course. I know a little bit of your question. Well, I'm a historian, so I'm, I'm fully entertained. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but maybe to, to bring that back home again and, and, and on point, to, uh, maybe you can ask me that one directly and again. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, we're just really talking about where, how we've gotten to where we are now, but especially around um, the if come deals, how the risk has gotten passed back to the creatives, especially around the development side of things. And and I, you know, I, I'm really now it means you have to have a war chest going into being 
part of this industry as a creative. So especially as the founder of the entertainment business school, I'm like, okay, how do we help creatives bolster their profiles so that they we actually stand a chance to hear from some of these voices, especially BIPOC voices who have been largely shut out of the industry up until now. So that's that's really where I'm headed with the conversation. Like how in addition to learning these types of business skills and strategies, how else can creatives continue to band together and thrive? So uh it's a, a very good and complex question to answer because there, there are a lot of different avenues at, at, depending on where you are and what, what kind of content you're trying to create. Uh, you know, on the one hand, there are uh, any number of organizations that are trying to be helpful to uh, independent and newcomers uh, in the industry uh, in the form of, uh, you know, creating grants or, or finishing funds. So, uh, and, you know, they, some of them have a particular lens on it, like Women in Film, for example, has a finishing fund for women-led projects. Uh, there are other uh, uh, ones that may be uh, looking for uh, Latinx projects or, you know, uh, African-American you know, uh, projects that are led and whatever. And then there are others that are more thematic, like, uh, uh, you know, environmental and sustainability type of, of work so you know, you know groups like the Redford Institute and and whatever that are, that are in that so yes an impact uh, yeah and and what a lot of you know on the grand end of it you know what a lot of people will do uh, is uh, if you're a profit making company, they will go and, and find what's called a fiscal sponsor. Yeah. Uh, and, and there are a lot of different organizations that are set up and, you know, whether it's the, you know, the International Documentary Association or, you know, Women in Film has, has its own fiscal sponsorship or whatever. There, there are a variety of those different groups where you essentially can, uh, for an administrative fee, they offer the charitable deduction to people who, uh, you know, uh, people who are high net worth individuals or, or organizations that only contribute to 501c3. To uh, the investor for the film project, yes. Yeah. And, and, and that, so it's kind of a win-win proposition for the creator as well as the donor or the grant uh, giver. So that's one one sort of way. The, the other is, you know, you... Uh, you know, you do the usual friends and family kind of route to, you know, where you are, are sort of scraping things together. Uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, particularly on the on the front end of their careers, you know, work to do uh, shorts, uh, you know, and, and try and get award recognition and things. I mean, are there any number of people who've done that or, uh, or, or, you know, gotten scripts in the Nickel Fellowship yeah. program at the Motion Picture Academy and, and, and that they get picked up in that, or they go to groups like the Blacklist that kind of curates and then recommends and puts things out into the world as well. It's uh, a high, highly competitive field, yeah. uh, highly competitive area to get into those fellowships or win in, in place in any of the contests. Um, and it does seem to help creatives when they do that, especially land representation. Um, so maybe they don't walk right into, you know, some big production deal at Netflix, but maybe they land the representation that then can position them for more longevity in their careers. Um, yeah. I, I, it seems like creatives, we just always have to be advocating for ourselves um, yes. and one of the team members that creatives need at some point and at various points is an attorney. How do you advise creatives on when to find an attorney and how to find one good one? Um, well, two things, you know, that, that even if you've written something that, that may be great, but getting being able to submit it uh, usually requires that you have 
uh, an agent, a manager, uh, or an attorney uh, who can act as your sort of go-between because uh, most places will not uh, accept unsolicited material. Uh, and the reason for that is really uh, protectionist that people get sued all the time for idea theft or, you know, and, and uh, it's very common, you know, if you want to submit something like, you know, um, I submitted uh, something for consideration at Disney uh, and, you know, they have it all set up online. There's a submission agreement and you sort of waive all sorts of things, you know, before they'll even look at what, you know, what you send them, uh, you know, uh, for the, uh, the actual content of what they're going to be reviewing and considering uh so th the kind of form that's like this may be identical to something else that we're developing and yep. we are indemnified of <laughs> and, and you know you you just have to kind of grin and bear it uh you know because there's not you know sometimes you can get around that if you have a, like a really powerful agent or, or something like that but but that's somewhere down the line uh you know particularly in in early to middle sort of uh, advancement of wherever you are that that's a challenge and you know so getting an, an enter, entertainment attorney you know that is uh, something that uh, you know it can be um you know i think probably the best way is is working uh, you know talking to people who have had uh, you know experience uh, you know, with particular people, uh, you know, there are, you know, Variety and the Hollywood Reporter and and, and, a, and a number of other places all, you know, will publish sort of the kind of super lawyer sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, that the, there, you know, there are, if you're an individual, uh, you know, it the, most of the people who represent individuals as opposed to corporations or production companies tend to be in sort of smaller to mid-sized, uh, more boutique firms, uh, which does not mean they're not just as good as people in large firms. And in point of fact, a lot of people in uh, in the boutique firms, uh, you know, have started out and gone through the large firm and wanted to be in a more uh, sort of personal and intimate kind of uh, working environment than sort of lock big law uh, sort of allows you to do. Uh, there, there are, um, you know, any number of guides, you know, that are out there, you know, and depending on where you, you know, you know, people might be listening. I mean, you know, I spent most of my career as a lawyer in New York. Uh, and, you know, there are you know, probably a, a dozen uh, or so type firms that are you know, particularly well known in the field uh, that tend to represent uh, individuals. Uh, more uh, and uh, you know they're not too difficult to find you know, in, in terms of but I think that, that probably the most important thing is somebody you, you can trust uh, in, in the sense of you know uh, the person you know he or she knows uh, the field well uh, and so for example you know I'm working right now actually on uh, uh, producing a, a, a musical that I'm trying to bring over from London. Uh, and as many years as I've been working in the field, I wound up hiring uh, one of my former law partners who's a theater lawyer because the theater world is radically different in terms of all of the customs and practices. Everything in the theater world is sort of on its head. From a writer point of view, author is sort of the, the king and you know, the leader uh, in the theater world. Whereas in the film and television world, it's almost inverted that way in terms of the writer is obviously very mission critical, but then there's a whole group of people who come in, you know, in, uh, you know downstream from you know, the writing process and, and, and sort of uh, come at it from all the different departments that are involved in, in 
producing a film or television programming. Yeah, well, when you're writing a novel, there is no risk of you being fired from the book you're writing. <laughs> so your publisher can take and put another writer on it. <laughs> Doesn't yeah. really happen. You know, it's, it's, it's funny. There, there's a book um, that I remember reading uh, that, uh, that John Irving wrote uh, a number of years ago. love John Irving. Uh, yeah, he, he wrote about, uh, I think it's called My Movie uh, my movie Business or something like that. And it was essentially he was writing about his experience in taking the Cider House rules and bringing yes. it to the screen. Oh, okay. uh, and, you know, he went through multiple directors, including one who passed away. Uh, and you know, it, it took so many years, you know, it, it took him like, uh, I don't know, 15 or more years, you know, from when he started in the process trying to, you know, with the script and whatever to get to get the movie made and and well, i've read that book and that's one of those rare films like the princess bride where the it was really true to its marrow which yeah. is so rare well and, and i think that yeah that so those sort of creative elements were part of it and and his son uh was supposed to play the uh, uh toby mcguire uh, uh, role and wound up being the uh, the captain uh it, it, who comes to deliver the news uh just uh to uh, charlie's theron uh, and uh, you know, so he he had grown, you know, he be, basically became too old for the part uh, <laughs> in, in in a number of the things, and then John, and John Irving uh, is uh, plays the uh, uh, conductor, station manager. Uh, 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 in the film as well but uh, at the end of the book which is the reason I went into this meandering thing is the uh, he, he sort of said that the, given his experience in making that uh, movie and taking it from that is this is the next time I think about making a movie I write a book instead <laughs> uh, and that was essentially because uh, he has that ability to sit in front of a you know a page, a word processor, a typewriter, how whatever his process is, and and has that creative ability, and he's not trying to pull all these different threads together, which is sort of the nightmare of being a producer, but also the fun and the challenge of it. Oh, that's so interesting. You know, my writing mentor is Tom Robbins, and Tom's eighty-eight now, and um, of course, Gus Van Sant made even cowgirls get the blues, and with Tom's experience. He wrote, he write, he's a very stylistic writer and um, of the beat generation. And so when it was being adapted for screenplay, he said, please let me help you take this very um, particular stylistic dialogue and turn it into something that people would say. <laughs> and they were like, no, no, we want to be really true to the book. And um, he felt like that was going to be a mistake, but that was what they chose to do with that project. So it's always interesting. And he was sort of like, well, here we are, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in the saddle now with whatever they decide to do with, uh, with my book. I suppose it's always nice, you know, to even get something like that option though, if you're, you know, cause the options at that time for a New York times bestselling writer were six figures you know, for then they expire and then they can get re-optioned and, you know, a writer, novelist especially could actually make a living off of the option, if not necessarily the sale of the book. Um, and, you know, earning a living, it seems like we are in an industry now that's turning a lot of the creatives into hobbyists because they have to figure out a way to earn a living. Um, and it, it's an interesting time where I hope to see more power come back to the creatives, but the I'm a little skeptical um, and something I want to talk to you about with this is the way that streaming and the streamers have disrupted 
the industry. Um, because you were talking about theatrical release, box office, this for especially films was the measure of success, you know, uh, is there profitability? Uh, and we used to talk about bankability, right? With the director and the talent attached. And now everything is going toward subscriptions and eyeballs on the screens at home. Um, can you tell me about some of the trends and changes you've seen, especially more recently? Um, one of the things that's happening is that uh, I remember when uh, cable stations, you know, first started coming in uh, and uh, and they were worried about cannibalization of markets or whatever. And, you know, and in the beginning uh, that, you know, they said, oh, you get, you know, 600 channels or whatever. But, you know, then they started doing studies and finding that, you know, of all the, you know, thousand or so uh, things that were on uh, guides and, you know, on, on your local cable uh, guides that the uh, people the uh, 90% of what they watched was from 17 of the of the channels and and the the top you know five of those is where most of the watching was so we 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 have both a proliferation of ways to uh, you know get things out there but also the smaller and smaller micro niche audiences uh, which uh, if you're able to contain budgets and really produce within the metrics of those, uh, that can work, but that doesn't necessarily translate into, you know, you're earning a really good living. Uh, you know, some things like syndication of television, like it used to be, you know, the, the model was that you would do a certain number of episodes and then the moonshot was you get to be friends and, you know, you've got, you know, 10 years of you know, 24 episodes and, and you bundle that all together and then you, know, you, you put that into syndication. Uh, and what, you know, and those deals are still happening, including with friends and Seinfeld or whatever, yes. uh, you know, golden girls. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, they're taking those large blocks of, of popular content and, and repurposing them. And uh, you know, there are, you know, battles going on now about, you know, how royalties flow in terms of the talent in those and, and what happens uh, with that. And, uh, and, you know, the, the, you know, the friends was on Netflix and then, you know, now it's uh, on HBO max uh, and, you know, Seinfeld's on Hulu, which is uh, Disney owned, uh, whatever, but so they're moving in blocks like that to yeah. just throw content. Yeah, I discovered the show episodes starring Matt LeBlanc. That was a Showtime show that's now on Netflix. And I was like, there's five seasons of this. And I had, I'd never had a Showtime subscription, so I hadn't been exposed to it. Well, so, yeah. yeah I, and I, you know, if you're in the industry, particularly, I mean, that, uh, and particularly from the writer's perspective, I mean, it, it's got sort of the dark side of Matt LeBlanc and whatever, and he plays that to, you know, to, oh, so to the hilt. Uh, and, and also, you know, it's sort of a, uh, like a dark noir in Hollywood and how the business operates with a lot of the personalities as well. The, the, you know, one of the other things I think that's, that's happening a lot is, uh, it, is that there are all these new different uh, platforms that people aren't necessarily paying uh, as much attention to as they could. Uh, you know, 
uh, I mean, if you look at YouTube, for instance, I that not everybody is aware of just how much content YouTube produces. I mean, they they already in in Playa Vista, you know, here in LA, they they already had a pretty large uh, studio complex there, and then they just bought the uh, Spruce Goose uh, complex, the old uh, Howard Hughes complex, right across the street from them, and are converting that to enlarge. So the the amount of sort of uh, that kind of content, in addition to user generated content. Uh, that's out there you know, from all these different services uh, is, uh, you know, it's, it's ballooning. Uh, and, and to go back to streaming, it's also interesting to watch. Um, you, you have, uh, you know, Paramount kind of just getting into the game now and you know, with, with what they're trying to do with Paramount Plus. But then you have Sony just did made two, two different announcements that were completely uh I guess unexpected. Rather than they're creating their own streaming service and competing with everybody, they said we're going to put out our content, our feature content through uh, Netflix, and so they've done an output deal with them. But they also, uh, as a knock onto that, after Netflix has its day, then they're all going to go over uh, to, now to Hulu or Disney, uh, mm -hmm. to Disney uh, and, and their streaming services. So they've chosen not to try and get in in the same way that Warner Brothers did HBO Max or Universal, uh, you know, has done the, uh, Peacock, uh, that, they've, they've chosen that as well. So th there are some sort of funny things that are happening. And in the midst of all of this, there are fire sales going on for all the cable services. Their role in the world seems to be shifting dramatically. You know, it's, it's not clear whether it's just moving you know, pieces on the board, uh, you know, in different places, but in the end of the day, you're sort of in the same place. Uh, you know, one of the things that, that's going on right now is uh, Roku and YouTube are having a battle. So they pulled YouTube off of Roku. Oh. Uh, but, but uh, you know, Google Chrome, Fire uh, TV with the, you know, the, the sticks, uh, uh, you know, all yeah. that. Uh, and Roku, uh, Xbox, all of those as you know, ways, basically, they, they are doing what the cable services, what Spectrum did or whatever, they, they're now sort of in that. And if you have an internet connection of some sort, which could come you know, from, a, you know, from an AT&T or a Verizon or whatever, if you're getting it in, uh, you can stream that way and you don't have to have Spectrum in the middle of it. So they're you think all- those companies are doing like a type of bundling? Well, that's that's what's going to be interesting to watch. There, there are two things um, I've been intrigued with. One, I was just reading an article about you know uh, searching fatigue on Netflix, uh, in the sense that I think that yeah, we call it menutainment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and there's a certain amount of exhaustion, and I think we we may actually need to go back to the old school TV guide where you put it all together and you could actually sort of see what's out there as opposed to algorithms suggesting things you want yeah. to watch. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if that's doable, uh, but but there's certainly a lot of that content. But right now what's also happening where, is- Where do you keep your watch list? Let me ask you that. Um, you know, I'm kind of old school about that. So I, I literally am binary about how I sort, sort of write it down. Uh, but- uh, so you have a running watch list that you have written down. I keep my watch list in IMDb. Yeah. Do you train? Do you train the algorithm in Netflix? Do you like and dislike shows? So no, I 
it sounds I've like been, you're much more sophisticated about that than I've I I've been training the algorithm since I got streaming Netflix and I was one of like the original DVD supporters of the company. I have to tell you, pretty much everything that they recommend to me now is like, I love it. It doesn't make a mistake now, but it's probably taken, I don't know, maybe 10 years for it to get to that point of training the algorithm. And there must be thousands of shows and films that I've, you know, done that with and if you're not doing that you you won't necessarily get a direct hit on what you like but like now it tells me oh you like strong female leads in historical romantic period epics here are your movies (laughs) it knows me really well (laughs) well you know and i would have to say that that my viewing is so eclectic uh that it's everything from Call My Agent in the, the French yeah. series to, we just uh, finished The the Serpent uh, uh, about this serial killer in Asia you know, who I'd never heard of, but, you know, very dark, you know, uh, uh, series. Uh, and then before that, uh, watching um, on uh, HBO Max, the uh, uh, the Warrior series that uh, uh, Bruce Lee's daughter, Shannon, uh, was involved in. Uh, oh, that's cool. I haven't heard of that. Yeah. Well, it, it's really interesting, you know, uh, you, you talk about history and you're interested in it. I, I was particularly interested in it from the perspective of uh, the, what it was like for Chinese Americans around uh, uh, you, you know, post-Civil War uh, <clears throat> up in the San Francisco Bay Area yeah. when, they were, when they were building the Transcontinental Railroad and when there were strong uh, conflicts between the Irish uh, immigrants and the Chinese, and you know, and and the the tongs that were created as sort of a defensive mechanism against the exploitation of the Chinese community, and they took on uh, you know their own uh, kind of uh, controls uh, as well. But it was so interesting. It you know it's fairly graphic in terms of a lot of uh, uh, the uh, martial arts that are involved in it, but it's also really interesting uh, you know, from a broader perspective in terms of the uh, social cultural aspects of, of uh, what it was like that are not unlike some of the anti-immigrant you know things that we're you know observing in in today's uh, you know, uh, world as well. So I did. I, I found it particularly interesting to sort of hung with that, and uh, uh, it, it, uh, it, it was interesting because my wife, who's a Quaker, uh, was uh, you, you, you normally would be going like this, you know, at some of the martial arts scenes, and she was actually uh, kind of intrigued, not because she because of that, but but because of everything, the setting. Uh, you know that that it wasn't gratuitous. That there was a reason that people were you know, combating the way that they were. So I, it, that all comes back to. I don't know how I would set my my algorithms or inform those in a way because they would probably be going like this and not, trying to figure out, you know, how that all fits together. Sure. Well, and we all have to find the systems that work for us. You know, I I, I love these systems too. I, I have a lot of paper <laughs> around yeah. the house and rely on it. In fact, I feel like my memory really works better if I write things down and I use paper. I get a little bit lost in the screens, especially on how many we have. We go from one screen to the next. And as you know, I have a nine-year-old, so he really goes from screen to screen. But thankfully, he helps me with my technology now. But <laughs> you know, more about it than I do. <laughs> So, so as a writer, you've probably read some of the uh, the works of Julia Cameron and the Artist Way. Oh yeah, sure. She yeah. lives in the house. Yeah, well, she uh, was a uh, college classmate and actually a client of mine as a friend. Uh, and uh, I, I remember uh, you, you know, 
took her course and I, I also saw her doing morning pages and, and she always believed in writing by hand. You knew how to use a computer, wasn't a question of that, but believed that from a creative point of view that there was something kinetic, the, the connection to the page in a physical kind of way, uh, that that was a way of kind of opening up creatively uh, each day with sort of a, uh, uh, an emotional or mental download <laughs> kind of thing as a, as a way of getting going, but it was always done, you know, uh, you know, with a pen and paper. Yeah, there's magic to it. I mean, even my even handwriting. Like I look at my grandfather and my great grandfather's handwriting, and you know, I wasn't taught to handwrite like that. It's just it's a work of art. Uh, seeing even their ledgers from the farm, you know, in, in that era, a hundred years ago, it's just it's fascinating. And then, and we continue to push forward, uh, yet still having the same biology. Our our bodies haven't changed um, in really millions of years, but yet our technology is so rapidly changing and we have adapted and tried to adapt uh, so quickly to all of these changes and uh, the entertainment business is so fascinating because it's always changing yep. um, pandemic has changed us too like you spoke about earlier in the call new opportunities have opened um, others like you know I know that the, the a lot of uh, big hit got uh, taken down with the insurance in production I've, I've heard numbers batted about like four billion in insurance paid out to lost production uh, in, in during 2020, during the heart of the pandemic before we really got COVID protocols in place. And I imagine some of that reticence is still there. This has always been a challenging industry to see ROI. Uh, and, you know, but it's always had the appeal of the, the glamour and the excitement. And it does still seem to attract investors, uh, you know, from, from, all, from all walks. Um, so I guess one of the questions that I want to ask you is really about like where you see opportunity now in the industry. So um, it's a good question because we're always uh, struggling with that. Is 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 you know what uh, what is kind of worth digging in, figuring that if you're lucky, uh, you'll get something done in five years or less. Uh, it is more like five to ten. Uh, and, you know, it's one of the reasons why, uh, you know, <clears throat> certainly from a producer's perspective, you work uh, on multiple things because there are different timelines. There's a lot of waiting on other people or whatever. And, and, and so yeah. you're not going nuts. So you wind up juggling a lot uh, in, in order to, you know, keep keep things moving forward. So I, I think um, a lot of what at least I personally am focused upon and what I believe resonates with people who are particularly now uh, is uh, content that has some sort of uh, uh, meaning to it. Uh, it's more than just pure entertainment. I mean, you know, I love action movies, you know, you know, I find them entertaining and I love James Bond and, you know, Mission Impossible and all that kind of thing, just as pure entertainment, just because they're they're engaging and I admire you know, everything it took to do them uh, and to do them so well. Uh, but the things that I think really stick with you, I mean, if you go back and things that you know I grew up with that were meaningful to me, like you know Twelve Angry Men or you know you know some of the you know To Kill a Mockingbird and you know things that have now been resurrected in in a new generation. The, uh, the those are the things that to me seem 
uh, to be people are are really really looking for something that that has more than just transitory meaning to it. Kind of the moral compass, maybe even. I, I think it's important for you know creators not to think we're too self-important, and in the sense of you know we the, we 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 have the the ultimate vision on things and personal ways of telling stories that, that are meaningful. And, you know, I, I think the things that, you know, it's not meant to be, uh, it's not stories that are propagandish or, you know, you know, heavy handed, but really things that kind of move you. I mean, I think, you know. Um, yeah, uh, you were the one who on our last call said, put a little spinach in the popcorn. That is it. <laughs> That's really That's memorable. It. <laughs> yeah, not, not, not original to me, but but I, but I will, will use it uh, amply uh, because I believe it's a good right describing. But I think that there's a lot to uh, really uh, trying to um, do things that you know, are uplifting, inspirational to people. Uh, so a lot of what I work on are either things that have sort of a historical bent to them, a multicultural bent to them, uh, uh, you know, something where there's a little bit more of a higher purpose while... Well, you produce The Prophet. I mean, it doesn't get any more inspirational than that. That is, it's OG inspiration right there. Uh, uh, yeah, and it, you know, it's funny because I uh, did a, uh, a Q&A with Roger Allers last summer for the Illuminate Film Festival about that, and uh, and I hadn't watched it in a long time, and I... Uh, neither at he actually, and uh, I didn't watch it in a couple of years. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I still get as teary at the, at the end and moved by it, uh, whatever. So, I, you know, that to me is is a film. Um, you know, that 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 number one, I'm proud to have been associated with the team of people who did it, and and also, you know, that I think it will stand the test of time. Uh, and you know, so I'm, um, you know. I work on everything from documentaries and you know, I'm working on one on, you know, the history of ragtime music right now with uh, somebody who wrote a book uh, about that uh, back in New York. Uh, I uh, just optioned a book that we're just started the writer's room process uh, called An Accidental Cuban uh, that we are trying to develop into a, um, a television series uh, that would shoot uh, maybe, you know, partially in Cuba, partially in oh, Puerto cool. Rico, or Dominican Republic. Uh, and that's kind of exciting. And, you know, it will be a bilingual uh, type of production. Uh, and uh, it. interesting challenge. Uh, I've got a couple of things that sort of go back to my uh, work in the, uh, with the, uh, in the basketball year. Uh, world when I worked at the NBA. So I've got dramatic series based upon the pre-NBA uh, uh, era of black professional basketball before the sport was integrated. There were all these, you know, leagues, uh, you know, that uh, traveled around the country and competed with each other. In uh, a documentary about the, a, a, a very important sort of last game in Chicago between the uh, the all-white uh, Minneapolis Lakers and the uh, all-black Harlem Globetrotters, uh, and uh, where the that was uh, legend. Yeah, well, Globetrotters won. Uh, you know, they beat them. They, they they thought they were sort of a joke uh, team, and they they outplayed them uh, more than once actually. But we, they were doing a documentary about that game. So, and That's then cool. working in the anime. You must have loved that too. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. What yeah. an exquisite piece of filmmaking and storytelling and documentary filmmaking. I mean, it was just exceptional. You know, it's, you know, it's interesting. I've I've always thought if I you know you talk about ways of earning a living or whatever. If if I were a full time writer, uh, 
I would also develop a whole skill set in editing uh, because you, editing is essentially writing in a different way. Uh, and it's, editors are very much in demand. And, and, and point of fact, when it comes to doing documentaries, I, I think editors are far more important than the directors or producers or anybody else, uh, because they're the people who sort of weave it together and make it happen. In terms of employability and just the, the practical part, but also using a lot of the same cognitive processes, uh, you know, for the architecture of, of writing, storytelling, and, and, and uh, you know, character development and arcs and whatever, uh, you know, I, I think that, you know, if I were in the, that position, I, I would probably try and, uh, uh, you know, become a ver very adept at, uh, you know, uh, avid or final cut or both and uh, in, in learning that whole skill set. Cause, cause you can- point. I mean, it teaches you a lot too about just how fragmented our world is. And I remember seeing my DP from my film Chalice he also and I have been working on the editing and he's so great in Final Cut. And he was joking when I first sat down, I'd never done any editing. And he said, I can make anybody say anything if I've got two cameras on them. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he goes, let me show you. And he edited just for fun, edited a clip together. And I was like, oh my gosh. I mean, it taught me about journalistic integrity as well, because when the, it's a certain level of power, when you really have the storytelling ability like that, especially in a, a documentary and the editors do, just like you were saying, that's where the story comes through. Well, yeah. And, you know, on that point, uh, you know, in, in the era of our intelligence and, and editing I mean, you know the era of deep fakes and and misinformation or whatever I mean you know that the you know editors have very powerful tools under their uh, command and uh, you know it is yeah. interesting but yeah but yeah so you know I guess uh, it's a good tip I, I think it's a yeah. great one because it also is uh, it, it's employability and anyway we talked the last point that I want to talk to you about um, is building a team because you have people I bet that you've got a lot of longevity and relationship with within the industry. Um, can you speak about building a team for the creatives who are listening for whom they're like, yeah, some may be getting started. Some may be at a mid-career level transitioning from, you know, I've been producing on, on scripted. Now I want to transition to writing, like all of those sorts of lateral moves that happen as well as coming up in the industry. How do you, how do you recommend building a team? Well, I think, you know, I think the, the first thing is to figure out where you fit in the constellation of, of the creative team uh, and, and what your role and responsibilities are and, and what's you know, either something that you can already do and do well uh, or that you can uh, sort of evolve quickly enough to have the skill set to be able to, to handle whatever that is. Uh, and then I think it's like a, whether you're talking about a production company or a corporation or a startup company or whatever, it's, it's about finding in uh, surrounding your people, uh, yourself with people who are uh, hopefully smarter than you are, and and, and have all these different skill sets, uh, and then figure out how you, uh, you know, can sort of orchestrate, uh, you know, if your role is as the producer or the director or whatever, how you orchestrate that so people work in harmony with one another. Uh, you know, I, I think probably the the biggest challenge that that uh, I have faced is not the technical things. I mean, I've I've been sort of diving into things and force gumping my way through a lot of the stuff for many years now. Uh, but I think that probably the, the biggest challenge is the people dynamics. 
uh, and, and because sometimes some of the people who are the most brilliant and skilled at what they're doing, you know, there are other issues that are going on. I mean, you know, most recently in the headlines, you see that with the Scott Rudin, for example, or, or Harvey Weinstein before him, that there were really dark things, you know, in their lives and their dynamics of working with people. And yet, you know, each of them was responsible for some really great, you know, uh, you know, uh, cinema in the case of Harvey and, and Scott and you know and Broadway, you know, just and as well as well as in film. But you've got to have the right group of people who have the skill set and aren't dysfunctional or uh, toxic in, in that kind of way. And 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 I think you know specifically to be concrete about you know it's in particular if you live in a place like um, you know I would say you know certainly Los Angeles, New York, and and in more recent times Georgia, uh, there are very significant communities of very talented people. And there are, you know, there are job boards, there are you know, people who talk to each other. You know, uh, I, I'm on the Producers Guild International Committee and, you know, people are always asking who's a fixer in Bahrain or, you know, you know how do I find, you know, I, I, you know, I need uh, to put together a crew for five days, uh, you know, in Iowa, you know, uh, you know not in, and, and you know, and, 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 you know, where people are coming to this country to work and whatever, and, and people are always pretty generous with each other and saying, "I work with so and so or whatever," or you know, uh, and, and that kind of information sharing and that kind of relationship building is probably uh, that networking is is as effective as anything. I'm, I'm on a writers board where people go you know, from some of whom are pretty well known, but who are posting things and sharing things and really very generous with each other that way as well. So there, there's a lot out there, but it takes time. You know, I mean, I, you know, when I moved to Los Angeles, you know, I've been coming out here for many decades and whatever, and I, I was sort of maybe naive and arrogant at the same time and thinking it was going to be simpler just to tap into all that. And, uh, and, 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 but I was also going into a very different part of the industry, the distribution and marketing side of it. And, and I knew that pretty well from you know all the experience I had but when you move into production it's a totally different group of people and dynamics and whatever so putting together a team very carefully it took me a while to find the right partner to do this Cuba series we just had our first writers room uh, meeting yesterday and kind of got the framework set for that so uh, yeah uh, I but uh, you know I'm not sure there's any magic to it. I think that there's just a little bit of trial and error and learning from experience, uh, you know, positive and negative. Do you follow your gut hunches on people? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, sometimes I've been wrong. I mean, somebody once said to me, it's uh, it's good to go with your gut if you've got a good gut. Uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, I think sometimes uh, uh, I've led a little bit more with my heart than, than it was logical to do. Uh, but for the most part, I would say, uh, you know, I've got good sounding boards now. And that's part of what you learn as well as, is to you know people to bounce ideas off. You know, what do you think about this? Or you know, you know what's your view and and whatever. And and you know, you value their wisdom. And you know, even at the highest level, I mean, you know, Steven Spielberg was sharing scripts and things with a lot of well-known names of people. You know, you know, there there are ways. You know, the people do collaborate and and help each other. Uh, you know, because ultimately, I think uh, you know at least healthy people in the industry want others to be successful and uh and you know it, it as long as it's a uh a two-way street and you know it's reciprocal that, that uh, and it's uh, you know i think that that's that's the way a lot of things get put together and then once you find 
you know, people you work well with, you know, the people, you know, you, you, at least like you're with your core team, people tend to work together and kind of stick together because they, they know each other's quirks and, you know, the, the pluses and minuses and whatever, and they, but they know how to work together. Yeah. And the, yeah. It was Rudyard Kipling, I think, in the Jungle Book, who said the, the wolf needs the pack and the pack needs the wolf. And having that wolf pack around you, and you'll see it when even when you IMDb a certain filmmaker, you'll be like, oh, they've used the same editor for 20 years. They've used the same colorist. You know, the yeah, well, you know, Scorsese. Editor. He's been a Thomas Schoonover. Uh, you know, he's worked with her for, you know, uh, for ever. It's about yeah. trust, isn't it? I mean, yeah. having people you trust, whose opinions you trust and value. Um, I want to circle back to talking about impact, having an impact in society. And you're the founder of the Social Impact Entertainment Group. Tell me more about that. I might not have said the name exactly right. Uh, well, I'm one of the founders of uh, the Social uh, Impact Entertainment Society. Society, uh, yes. It's SIEsociety.org. Uh, and uh, it, you know, you talk about uh, you know building things. I mean, basically, that is something that. Uh, uh, with my uh, co-executive d- director, Robert Ripperger, we were talking about it for probably um, uh, almost a year. And then the pandemic uh, came uh, and it was kind of an outgrowth of some things we've been doing with the uh, the, the Producers Guild and the, the Social Impact Entertainment Task Force there. Uh, but we found that we wanted to be more inclusive of um all media platforms and also not just producers, but people from a lot of different uh, 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 perspectives. Uh, so that, you know, if we wanted to, so that if we were doing events, you know, we wanted directors, we wanted writers, whatever, we, we wanted to basically to create a very large table for people. So uh, we launched it at the end of August. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm pleased to say that, you know, we've really, you know, pretty uh, systematically been adding some significant members uh, uh, to it, uh, you know, in the six months that we've been operating. So there well, two- it's a great place to find your team, right? With people who have maybe like-minded interests, if you care about social impact. Yep. And so, so you know, there were two sort of team building aspects to that. One of that was, well, you know, what are the sort of core areas we need to focus upon? So, you know, in addition to Robert and me working as uh, you know, in the executive director type of roles, uh, we also you know have people who are uh, looking for partnerships and uh, amplification. We have you know people who are focused on the international side of it, a finance person. Uh, we've got people who do the community outreach and social media. Uh, in it, and then uh, you're five hundred one c three, aren't you? No, we we, we no. did we, we set up one of those fiscal sponsorship relationships. Okay. We were following the model of South by Southwest, actually, yes. uh, and and set it up. So we, we figured that it gave us more flexibility to do things and fewer uh, administrative and tax reports to do. We wanted to keep yeah. it kind of lean and mean and simple, uh, and uh, so we set it up that way. And and then. Um, what did you set it up as? The business person in me is like S Corp LLC. What did you create? We set it up as an LLC. Oh, and then, an LLC. Okay. And then we've got a company, uh, a, a group called SEMA Studios, uh, who you may know, and and they yeah. do, they're our fiscal sponsor. Uh, and then um, we, more recently, we brought in uh, two uh, different groups who have been really interesting to work with. One um, 
a group, uh, uh, Frank Connolly, who focuses on corporate uh, social responsibility. And so we've been developing some CSR tools and measurement and assessment in, the, in that area as it relates to media uh, and entertainment. And then the other uh, from Johns Hopkins, uh, uh, Susan Kren and uh, Jane Gray, uh, from there, who do the social and behavior, behavioral communications. We're looking at that, and you put that together with what is social impact entertainment, what its intentionality, what it, and, uh, and it, so we, we've got a lot of discussion working groups going together on that in addition to uh, uh, curating panels uh, at different festivals. Uh, I mentioned the Illuminate Festival. There's one coming up there that we've curated and are co-producing with them on, uh, I think it's May 24th or 5th. Uh, we, we've got another one for Games for Change is one of the groups we just brought in because video game, virtual, yes. uh, in immersive uh, uh, entertainment uh, is a whole new world that that is really just kind of finding its own. It's been around for a long time, but, but the technology and other like things. Alternate reality entertainment, like stuff from Niantic Labs and whatnot. We, have, we could be seeing a lot more of that. I, I find it really interesting. Yeah. And yeah, and, and there's, you know, I'm working on a project photographer who's based in Tokyo and we're sort of working on an idea about how to develop something that sort of venue based and maybe even mobile, or, or, you know, touring a version of that. Uh, and uh, so that's sort of our team. And they, they, they two of the people came from the Skoll Center at UCLA, yes. which, which is sort of dormant at the moment. We're hoping it'll, you know, uh, pick back up post uh, pandemic, but uh, we were fortunate to, to bring them in, and, and they they were right on point uh, with what we wanted to do. And other people we from the PGA and you know, various parts of our lives, and we sort of put put the group together. So that's one part of how we build a team. Uh, the other part is is we looked out into the world, and and this is an ongoing thing that we're doing right now, uh, as to well, who do we want at the table. So you know, we all had pretty strong contacts and we're pretty good at bringing in people from the film and television community. Um, various of us uh, had contacts in the academic world. Uh, so I was able to reach out to Harvard's X Media Lab and Journeys in Film. Uh, with uh, with uh, USC, we uh, were able to bring in Hollywood Health and Society, uh, Norman Lear's uh, group, and, and most recently we were fortunate to get uh, the Entertainment Media, uh, the Environmental Media Association, uh, to join us, uh, which was formed by uh, initially by uh, Norman Lear and Alan Horn, and then Debbie Levin has been running it very successfully for the last twenty years. So. Uh, we, we've been bringing people like that in, and then in the CSR area, because of the focus, um, uh, we just got Al Roker Entertainment to join us as well, because he's very interested in, in a number of the things we're focused on. So, so you know, classy. That's yeah. Awesome. Yeah, so so we're not done. I mean, that's just what we've done in our first six, that's our first six months. But, uh, you know, we're rolling. Uh, and, you know, we, we have targeted, uh, you know, I think that from a diversity point of view, we, we still need to get uh, better and, and more uh, expanded and inclusive in that. But that's very much in our, we're targeted that uh, in, in both on an organizational basis and individually. Uh, and, you know, the big thing for anybody listening is it's free to sign up. You just go to saesociety.org and you find right on the landing page there, uh, you, you'll see, uh, you know, you just click on, you know, you can set up a, you know, uh, 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 basically 
put a headshot and your bio in there and you're rolling and it gets you into, we've got events, we've got a job board, we're working on a speaker's board uh, uh, to go with all of that. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we are hoping that what we'll be doing is, is more and more getting people who are siloed in their own institutions, talking to each other, aware of each other, because the video game community, for instance, wasn't talking to the theater community. So we've got, we're bringing in theater people and getting everybody in, in the, saying, what is this thing, social impact entertainment? How does it relate to CSR and SBCC? And, you know, and, and getting that sort of mixed together in a way that has not existed before. Oh, I love that Venn diagram of intersectionality yeah. where there wasn't previously and those silos weren't necessarily talking to one another. It's really interesting. Plus, then you've got also the dot coms, right? Having moved yep. in streaming and that whole uh, new element that's on the board as well. That's yeah. so cool. Thank you so much for sharing more about that and your vision and the intersection also with uh, with the universities and the educational side as well, because that's where so much of our talent uh, resides. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah. We're, we're uh, you know, it, it's interesting to see it all, how it's all going to you know, evolve in the time ahead, but I, you know, I think we're going to get to a point where you're doing some live events in a vaccinated world. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we hope actually to have a conference uh, where realistically it's probably a 2022 thing, yes. uh, but, but we are already doing, you know, if you'll see on the website, we've already been doing some things uh, on, uh, on zoom uh, in addition to what we've been doing with these uh, f uh, festivals and conferences uh, as, as plugins to those. And, uh, you know, the, the hope is, um, you know, particularly, you know, one of the areas um, that we're really heavily focused upon and trying to build up is impact measurement and assessment, uh, because it's kind of what everybody is looking for. It's what um, TakePart.com used to do with participant media before they, yeah. uh, they go shut that down. Uh, and what we are doing uh, is to... Uh, Sort of figure out well, how we might step into to that area, and because you guys would be wise to build the audience that is interested in this kind of media, so that you're like, hey, we own the audience as well as you know the people who are creating that content. You can connect them. Yeah, yeah, we're you know we're looking at that, and we've got working groups building tools, you know, you know for that, and we got some people who are pretty expert. Uh, from different areas, uh, you know, who work uh, uh, actively in that field, including like Christina Lindstrom uh, is sort of our guru and head of that area for us. Uh, and she comes out of um, uh, the uh, uh, participant media where she ran that for them for many years. And now she's got a, a, a group called seachange.org. Uh, yeah, and they, you know, they do work with you know, everybody from ITV to yeah. uh, Amazon and you know, significant clients uh, like that because people want to know, uh, particularly the underwriters, the financiers, the you know, the grant givers, uh, the uh, people behind it. They want to know, uh, okay, we gave this money, but what did it do? You know, yeah. you know, they, and it's, it's so it's. Part of that can be ROI in terms of monetary ROI, but part of it also can be qualitative. For example, one discussion we were having on this uh, topic was, was the idea of um, somebody who was a high net worth individual who said, uh, I'm not necessarily interested in whether I make my money back at the box office, uh, but if you're 
film on the environment led to a thousand people signing up for the National Resources Defense Council. Uh, that to me was a success. And, and, and so even if I lost money financially on the investment, if, if I converted people and got them actively engaged uh, in trying to uh, address the issues of climate change and what we need to do as a society uh, you know, to avoid the disasters that will come unless we change, uh, you know, that's a success for me. So we're okay, looking at that. Success metrics on two sides, because there's the investor success metric, but then there's maybe the audience viewer success metric of, you know, enjoying the piece of cinema that they saw. And especially if it was arresting or engaging, having something to do with that uh, and energy and emotion, the stimulation, you know, I'm a surfer. So it's like, well, you know, could there be a movie that actually gets people down to do a beach cleanup? Because those types of things within our world are, are really where the difference is made. And I think we're all a little tired of going to see films that are like, oh my God, you know, the, the rainforest is burning and there's nothing I can do. And it, it, it's um, like... Well, and, and that, you know, that just is sort of like empty calories to, to be right. like, I think the idea is, I think people are looking for ways to channel uh, so so that it isn't, you know, there's so many movies that kind of get you stirred up and riled up about, you know, the, the indignant or whatever. Uh, but, but if you don't, if that doesn't convert into some sort of action and some sort of change of behavior and some sort of movement uh, forward to, to uh, take that emotion and, and apply it in a constructive, positive way, then... Uh, you, know, you know, I think uh, that's a missed opportunity. So part of it of this is giving people direction. Uh, so part of what we do, like on the SAE Society side, is there's a resources section with a lot of reports and things, and we're trying to build out that whole resources area. Uh, and uh, and then part of we've got an ecosystem of people who register in different categories, so that if you uh, want to connect with somebody who is particularly uh, motivated to focus on mental health, you know, and, and issues. And, and uh, you look at uh, like 13 Reasons Why, which was sort of a disaster from, you know, in terms of its impact and, and you know, how they handled mental health issues, uh, you know, uh, but there are other ways of dealing with mental health issues that people have advised and, you know, uh, from a media psychology and other perspective and say, you know, here's how you might be able to do, do, deal with the issue of teen suicide and here are resources, World Health Organization, whatever, and kind of directing it so that filmmakers and creators would have some tools and access that you don't have to go out and just do Google searches and whatever. You can find it in that area. And you can also find people who are similarly interested in that area and, and building networks and connectivity between them. Oh, I love that. Oh, that's so wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for creating this for all of us filmmakers. Well, uh, very much a team effort. I mean, there are, there are a lot of us working at it, but uh, yeah, uh, we're, I'm proud to be involved with it. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate your expertise and your friendship and everything that you've contributed and shared with us today. Um, thank you from the bottom of my heart. I really appreciate it. We all do. I'm delighted to be here. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Entertainment Business Wisdom with Kaya Alexander and Sylvia Franklin. Find more career resources at www.entertainmentbusinessleague.com. Subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. And don't forget to rate and review. We appreciate hearing from you.